Well, good evening, and uh, greetings from First Baptist Mount Pleasant, uh, just across the, the town from here, and uh, we're thankful and pray for your church often, uh, that God would continue to use uh, the ministry of His Spirit and Word here uh, to grow His kingdom, and we're very thankful for what God is doing here. Uh, it is a joy to, to be back with you. I, I count it a privilege to, uh, to be able to preach and to uh, to teach God's Word, and, and specifically this evening as we look to um, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, uh, we're going to be looking to verses uh, 33 through 35, John 13, 33 through 35. I want to invite you now to stand as I read God's Word. I, in fact, I'm going to begin in verse 31. When he, that is Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this evening that we can come together, that we might feast upon your word. May you open our eyes that we might see the glorious truths that your word holds. May you open our ears that we might hear the beauty of the gospel. May you soften our hearts and bend our wills that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You can be seated. This evening's sermon is entitled, Engaging the World by Loving One Another. Engaging the world by loving one another. A person's final declaration is taken extremely seriously. Their last words, their last utterance should be seen as very important. Movies hinge on this moment. Love stories are seared into our hearts and minds because of the last testimonies of love. This is true in Scripture as well. In our text today, we're jumping into a moment in time where Jesus is giving his final words to his disciples. The scene that we have here, it begins in the beginning of chapter 13. In verses 1 to 20, the, the Thursday just before Jesus' death, in the upper room, he is observing Passover with his disciples. He washed the disciples' feet, and he witnessed the beginning of Judas's betrayal. Central to this gathering, Jesus, the Son of God, the, the second person of the Trinity, takes on the role of a servant and he stoops low to wash his disciples' feet. In chapter 13, verses 12 through 17, we see that when he had washed their feet, put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? 
You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, after saying these things, Jesus, being troubled in his spirit, declares that one of the disciples would, in fact, betray him. We know this to be Judas, the one who would sell Christ. But he was sent away by Jesus to do the work of Satan. Judas would not remain with the disciples. And when Judas was gone, we come to our text today, Jesus gave his final appeal to his disciples. He gave his final words to them as he is making his way to the cross. This was a place that they could not go. Many get this confused when he says, this is a place that I'm going that you may not go. It's not that he was going to the Father, it's that he was going to the cross. You see, it's no profit for you and me to go to the cross. Christ is the one who must have gone to the cross the one who could be the substitute, the one who could pay the price, the one who could be our Redeemer. But here in our text today, he gives the marching orders to his disciples. With his departure in view and a great deal of confusion, no doubt, in the hearts of the disciples, Jesus tells them of the immense importance of the love that Christians should have one to another. We see that Pink writes, Here is our Lord, leaving the world, speaking for the last time, and giving His last charge to the disciples. The very first subject He takes up and presses on them is the great duty of loving one another. And not with a common love, but after the same patient, tender, unwearied manner that He had loved them. And so in the shadow of Jesus' departure, Jesus says that the world will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. Now Judas had just showed that he loved himself by abandoning Christ. But the disciples, the love that, that they held, the love that they would have, the love that they would display was not rooted in self, but rooted in Christ. It would be proof to a a lost and dying world that they were not disciples of the culture, but disciples of Christ. It's interesting. I believe we should take note here that Jesus did not point to miracles. He did not point to large gatherings. He didn't even point to prayer meetings. But he pointed to the love of his disciples one to another as the primary distinguishing factor of his disciples from the world. I think all too often we jump to the Great Commission. We begin to think about how we are going to go to the nations and reach the nations with the gospel when in fact we don't even have healthy churches that are loving one another. You see, it starts here. Jesus begins the command to engage the world by loving one another that they might know that you are disciples of Christ. And then, later, what does he say? He says, then go in his authority as those who are displaying my love. 
And so love being such an essential topic, Jesus explains the how. How are fallen mortal men to carry out such love? Love of the Son, the second person of the Trinity. How can we possibly love this way? Well, he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You see, the love that Jesus is talking about is rooted in himself. And he had just exemplified this love by washing the disciples' feet. Now, this is not a new commandment because nothing like it had ever existed before then. But it's a new commandment because of its source. Jesus says, as I have loved you, this is how you are to love one another. The command to love is not founded upon what the disciples would have thought about one another. It wasn't rooted in their emotional state or in how warm they felt this relational connection when they were together. No, this call to love is based on the unchanging love of God in Christ. He says, love one another as I have loved you. Now, to better understand this, we have to understand the context, do we not? And to better understand context, I, I want to take us back to the Old Testament into Exodus where we find the Ten Commandments. You see, if you just jump into the law, if you just jump into the Ten Commandments and you begin to read them, you might be left asking more questions than having answers. Why must I obey these laws? Why should the people of God obey the law of God? But, when you know the context of the Exodus, when you know how God had loved His people, how He had provided for His people, how He had liberated His people, freed His people, been the power for His people, you understand His heart in the law, an enslaved people now freed needed to understand how to live that they might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You see, it's only when one understands the liberating act of God for Israel that we can recognize the responsibility to obey Yahweh's divine commands as given in Mount Sinai. If you just parachute into the command, you lose sight of God's love. You see, when rules are understood in context, they can carry deep and lasting meaning. And so to truly understand how we should love our brothers and sisters, we must know the context of this command. We must understand Jesus' selfless, sacrificial love for His bride. The love for His church. The love that, that compelled Him to come. The love that led him to die, yes, for the Father, but also for those who would believe. He came in obedience to the will of the Father, but he came to die for you and me, for the church. This is love. Now, as you read our text today, you may notice that this is a call not to love the world broadly, but to love the church specifically. This is a call for you to love the people seated beside you. This is a call for you as disciples of Jesus to love the members and the regular attenders of Christ church. This is a call for unity among the body here. And then more broadly, among like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ. 
This is not a call to love the world. Now, don't get me wrong. If you know the Gospel of John, which our assurance of pardon this evening was from the Gospel of John, we see that John and Jesus were focused on loving the world. Were they not? We know that there is a a call to love the world. In fact, when Jesus was questioned by a lawyer in the Gospel of Matthew, he said that the great commandment is to love God with all of your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. But here, in our text today, I love what Charles Spurgeon wonderfully says. This new commandment calls us not simply to love our neighbor as ourselves, but to love our fellow Christian as Christ loved us. And dear church, this is far greater than we love ourselves. You see, friends, we are called to love the world as we love ourselves, but we are called to love our brothers and sisters in Christ as Christ has loved us. Christ loves all people in some ways. But he loves the church in every way. There is no way that God does not love the church. There is no way that Christ has not loved the church. He went to the cross for the church. Many Christians today have lost sight of loving the church. Many churches today have lost sight of the love that the church is to have. And they're more focused on loving the world. But dear friends, we cannot properly engage the world if we don't first love one another. We have to understand the root, the context of our love. This type of thinking is not limiting, nor is it exclusive. But in fact, Jesus' teaching here allows us to understand God's love for the world. You see, it's in the context of the church that God reveals the foundational method of which He plans to show His love to the world at large. It's as we love one another that the world will know we are His disciples. And so how do we love one another? Well, God has consistently called out a people to Himself, has He not? He's consistently chosen to work among humans or among humanity to show His love to the nations. And today, He has chosen to work among the church. And in doing so, He shows His love to the world. He shows His love first in the Old Testament through Adam and Eve. We see Him show His love through Noah and His family. We see Him show His love through Israel. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, we see that they are called to love God. They are to love the Lord your God with all of their hearts and with all of their soul and with all of their might. But then later in Leviticus, they're called to love brother as well. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so in the Old Testament, we see Israel called to love their neighbors. They're called to love God. They're called to love one another because He is God. The source of Old Testament love among Israel is the same source that we're called to in the New Covenant, under the New Commandment. It's sourced in God. So why is it important for Jesus in His absence that His disciples would love one another. 
Why is this so important? I mean, we understand how we carry this out, but, but why is it so important that this be carried out among the church? Well, I've already told you. In verse 35, we see, all people will know that you are my disciples. It doesn't say some people. It doesn't say particular people. It says all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, this Christ-like love among Christians, among the disciples at first, but then spread down through the generations to us even today, all people will know that we are His disciples. Dear church, we need to be known for something, and all too often the church is known for the wrong thing. Wouldn't it be great if when someone heard the name of Christ Church, or they heard the name of First Baptist Mount Pleasant, the first thing they thought of is those men and women, young adults and children, love one another because they've been loved by Christ. I don't understand the gospel. I don't understand God. I don't understand the Bible. But when I interact with those people, it's obvious that they know a love that I do not know. Wouldn't that be wonderful? That's what Christ is getting at here. You see, we seek to engage the world in so many things, and, and in doing so, sometimes, maybe not every time, but sometimes, we lose sight of the foundation of why we're doing what we're doing. You see, we engage the world because Christ first loved us. And because He first loved us, now we can love one another. One commentator writes that this way of loving one another is not to be interpreted exclusively as loving our little in-group in the church. Have you ever seen that? Surely not here at Christ Church, but maybe at another church that you've been a part of. I know we see it at times in our church. But that's how this would have been interpreted among the Jews, that they were to simply love the Jews. Instead, it was to be understood as a breathtakingly explosive Excuse me. Instead, it was to be understood as breathtakingly explosive of old relationships and old patterns of obedience in the way it was pointedly presented in the Sermon on the Mount. Now we have to think, what, what's breathtakingly explosive about the Sermon on the Mount? Well, everything, right? But here, specifically, what this commentator is pointing us to is verses 43 through 48 in Matthew chapter 5. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so this is a, a radical, culturally different love. This is countercultural to everything that is going on in their day and surely in ours. The love that Christ is calling us to is not a man-made love. It's an eternal, supernatural love that is only available for those who have been born again by the Spirit, who by faith have been united to Christ. 
And so it's here that we're called to love one another. This love is unearthly. I mean, think of Christ in His life, in His death, in His resurrection. His love for His people, simply put, it was kind. Surely it was selfless, sacrificial, lasting. His love is compelling, even to the gravest sinner. When the person who has denied God and would not even entertain the thought of Jesus hears about the life of Christ and the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and the love of Christ, they must give account. And it's compelling to many. Even though they may deny Him, they must think of Him because of His love. And here, as he is about to leave this earth, he tells his disciples, love one another that the world may know me. As they know you, that you are my disciples, they will see my love. This kind, this selfless, this sacrificial, this unearthly love among the saints will point them to the Savior. And so Christ gives these final words. Now Paul further gives the qualities of what Jesus is speaking of here. You know 1 Corinthians 13, where here we're given what love truly is. I think we should look there to see the practical nature of what Christ is calling us to. It's not the the pinnacle of what Christ is calling us to. I, I think this is the jumping off point of what love should look like among the church. In 1 Corinthians 13, just to give you a a bit of context, Paul is sharing that spiritual gifts and service mean nothing among the church if they are not rooted in love. John MacArthur states, Love is permanent as a divine quality. Faith and hope will be realized in the presence of God, but love will remain. You see, faith and hope are not eternal. We don't need faith and hope once we are in glory. But love is eternal. We will love the Father throughout the age, throughout all our days, throughout eternity. Faith and hope will cease, but love, it will remain. And so as we seek to engage the world by loving one another, let us remember that engaging love, it's charitable. Paul says that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. This is engaging love. This is love that displays that you are disciples of Christ. As you love one another charitably, as you are patient with one another, as you are kind to one another, as you are not arrogant or rude, as as you show up early and you stay late to provide an environment for for the children to grow up in the Lord, for parents to to have a place to disciple their children as they are discipling them at home. As you show up early to to make sure the space where you worship is clean and and tidy and, and ready for worship. As you do these things charitably, not with your own needs in mind, but with the needs of others. When that new family shows up and you have to give up your treasured seat on the end of the aisle to move into the middle of the aisle, right? Who wants to sit in the middle, right? No, it's then that you're showing this 
charitable love. If we want to engage the world by loving one another, we do so charitably. Paul also points out that engaging love is selfish, or selfless, excuse me. It's not selfish. It's selfless. It does not insist on its own way, Paul says. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It is selfless. Let me ask you this. Have you ever been around a really good athlete? One, a person who is excelling in their sport? Have you ever been around them when they get beat? When someone actually does better than them? Really good athletes? They respond in a beautiful way. They respond with thanksgiving in their hearts because they have faced a worthy opponent. They, they respond by saying, this was a worthy opponent. They respond by going, this match made me better. They don't insist on having won the day, but they rejoice in the purity of the match. Let me ask you this. When is the last time you were in a Bible study, maybe you were reading a book with some in the church or maybe in a discipleship group at your job or in your community, in your neighborhood, and you realized, I think I'm wrong. I think I've misread this all of my life, or I was taught uh, the wrong idea about this particular thing. Now, in that moment, I, I've been there, I don't know about you, but in that moment, you have a decision to make. Am I going to double down and just hold to what I know in my heart is wrong? Or am I going to rejoice in the truth? Am I going to be thankful that God has brought people into my life who hold high the truth of His Word? Or am I going to hold tightly to my own positions and preferences and opinions and views? You see, this love that we're being called to in Christ to engage the world does not insist on its own way. It's a selfless love. It's a, a love that's willing to lay down our preferences, our thoughts, and our opinions to the truth of Christ. Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica, chapter 5, verse 11, to encourage one another and build one another up. Engaging love selflessly encourages others with the hope of building others up. You see, the world looks like it wants to build one another up, particularly in the marketplace and in many ways, but most often when we are seeking to build people up in the world, it's so that we can be built up as well. It's so that we can be promoted or we can be advanced. There's always a motive. But you see, in the church... That's not the case. Christ went to the cross that we might have life. He died that we might live. He rose that we might rise with Him. He, was, he ascended that, that we might be adopted into His family, that we might be even His bride. Engaging love is charitable. Engaging love is selfless. Engaging love is supportive. 
as we seek to engage the world by showing our love to one another and displaying the love of Christ, we show a supportive love. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13. Love bears all things. Love believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Last week, I had the, the privilege, it was last Saturday, in fact, of attending a funeral for a senior at the Citadel while preparing to lead a wedding later that day. These are the ups and downs of pastoral ministry. The funeral was particularly difficult, as you can imagine, for a senior in college to have died. But it was in that moment, as I, I sat in this church, and, and I was just an observer, I wasn't part of the service, and, and I was just witnessing the supportive love of the body of Christ. You see, there were probably a thousand people in this room, and I know that not all of them were Christians, but some of them I know personally, and they are. And they were there to love and support that family. They were showing a love that was otherworldly. In the hurt and in the brokenness and the tears and in the anguish of the mother and the siblings, the disciples of Jesus, the followers of Christ, endured all things together. They linked arms together. They, they loved one another and they will continue to do so in the days ahead. And so in that moment, I, I saw a picture of what we're being called to here in the book of John by Christ, and, and we're given example to by Paul. But then later that evening, with a bit of sadness in my heart, I, I step into our church to officiate the wedding of an 80-year-old woman and a 78-year-old man. And as I stood in our church before this couple, and having known them, you know, it's kind of funny for me at 40 to do premarital counseling for an 81-year-old and a 78-year-old. However, I, I learned their stories. I, I've got to know them quite well. And as I'm performing this ceremony, I'm, I'm thinking of this supportive love. You see, this lady had been married before. Her husband became quite ill, and she cared for him until his death. It's a beautiful picture of Christ's love for the church in a God-honoring marriage. The husband did the same. His wife became quite ill, and for many years, he cared for her and loved her and, and, and provided for her, and he loved her as Christ loved the church. It's a beautiful picture. And now standing before me is, is another beautiful picture of Christ's love as he brings these two together, even in this older age. But the thing that stood out to me were their friends who were seated in the church. These friends had walked with them through their previous marriages and the difficulties and the sacrifices and the hurt they had endured with them. And now they're here to celebrate with them. They were supportive. And so at the funeral or at the wedding, the body of Christ was displaying the love of Christ to the world. Because in both places there were people who were not believers and they were looking and hearing and seeing the love of Christ that He had called us to that the world might know that we are His disciples. Engaging love is charitable, it's selfless, and it's supportive. Engaging love is lasting. It's lasting. 
Paul writes that love never ends. Today, with the transient nature of church engagements in the United States, we don't display this very well. However, church membership, when taking meaningfully, not viewed as meaningless, but when we endure all things, when we stay connected to a local church, we reveal the love of the Savior to the world. This is cross-cultural, counter-cultural. It is completely different because, you see, we're very consumeristic, are we not? When things aren't exactly what we want them to be, we move from Walmart and go shop at Target. But that's not the love that we have been called to. You see, when you connect to a local church, when you commit to a local church in membership, when you link arms for the gospel with the brothers and sisters around you, you are submitting to the leadership of the church, but you're holding high the call that we are going to love one another in thick and in thin, through mountain high and valley low, in order that the world might see the love of Christ. Not because it's easy. Not because it's convenient. Not because it's desirable, but because it's necessary. It's interesting. When we engage in this type of love, we reveal the love of the Savior simply and beautifully. You see, He went to the cross loving you, loving all of those who would place faith upon Him, not because it was easy. Not because it was convenient. Not because it was desirable. But friends, the love in which he loved you was necessary. And that's the love we're called to. Not in our own strength. This isn't uh, an idea where, you know, I walk away and you walk away going, man, we need to love each other better. No, it originates in us understanding the love that Christ has for us first. And as you understand the love that Christ has for you first, you will be compelled to love one another. You will be far more patient, far more charitable. You will endure more. You will celebrate better. And you will love more deeply. You see, today the love that most people experience is temporal it's selfish. It's hurtful. It leaves people wanting. But dear friends, as the church display, displays the radical love of Jesus, the eternal love of Jesus, the counter-cultural love of Jesus, you and I are a picture. We're a display of what everyone truly longs for and what Christ came to accomplish. You see, every one of us, all of humanity desires to be loved. This is not an ordinary love, though. It's an extraordinary love. And that's because God is not an ordinary God. You see, the world worships the creature. The world worships self. The world worships culture. But God is extraordinary. There is none like Him. 
And so the extraordinary love is displayed through an ordinary people. The supernatural love of God is displayed through the natural lives of people. Not because we're great, but because God is. Because He has made us new in His sovereign plan and by the sacrifice of His Son and by the power of His Spirit, we can engage the world simply by displaying the love that we have for one another. So my charge for you this evening is that you rejoice in the Lord. That you rejoice in the Lord because He has loved you and He has enabled you to love one another as a way to engage your neighborhoods, the networks that He has placed you in, and in fact, the nations with His love. This isn't hard. You know, we think about missionaries and we think, oh, that's that really, you know, uh, important and, and exclusive Christian who is trained and been called and been sent out. And, and those folks who go to the nations, they are extremely important and they're doing an extraordinary job. However, this is something that we can all do, right? Loving one another, the people who are in your local church, as a way to display Christ to the world. This is not something crazy. It's pretty simple. But friends, you can't do it if you don't know the love of Christ first. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that though you are transcendent, high and holy, and we are lowly and sinful, you have made a way for us. We're thankful that you have first loved us, that we might know and love you. We thank you, God, that the love you have called us to in Christ was displayed by Christ as the way he washed the disciples' feet. So I pray now. I pray for this body, for Christ Church Presbyterian, that you would help them to rest in the love of Christ personally and to engage the world as they love one another corporately. And as they do, may you grow them more deeply in the gospel and would you grow them more broadly in influence in this community for your sake, O oh God, and for their good. That's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.